Object Obscura Behind the Scenes Episode, Take One. Hey guys, welcome to the behind the scenes episode of Object Obscura. We'll pull back the curtain and see all the obscura from pre-production to post-production of the podcast. I'm Thatcher Warkes, host and creator of the historical investigative podcast, Object Obscura. So this is a podcast about objects and their stories. But this episode, I want to just talk a little bit about myself and how I got to making this podcast. I'm a 23-year-old recent college graduate who lives in Tucson. I studied history, Spanish linguistics, Portuguese, and film and television. I've been speaking Spanish for about 16 years and learning Portuguese for three. I've made many small films and a short documentary as well. But why this podcast? Why Object Obscura? It starts with my ears. Like my linguistic studies, I have loved oral media. I love to listen. When I would hear people talk, I would think of the phonetics and dialects. Essentially, I would hear how people said things, not really what they said. I'm trying to be a better listener. Therefore, I turned to podcasts to listen. Hearing Sarah Koenig's calm voice in season one of Serial was ear-opening. The cold case of a murder trial reopened, unfolded, and investigated. I was hooked. Then the mystery show came. Starly Kind's poppy voice jumped into the mystery podcast scene. Each episode in her podcast was simple. A friend would call her about a mystery, and she would solve it. And three of those six episodes in season one were about objects. That was my first inspiration. As I listened to more true crime and comedy podcasts, I developed a knack for seeing a pattern of mystery and storytelling. This summer, I decided to mix my passion for listening and history into one project, this podcast. I woke up early on July 28th, 2020, wanting to make a virtual documentary, but that just didn't pan out. Then I thought about a podcast. I called my sister and she actually gave me the name Object Obscura. Thanks, sis. I drew up five different logos for the podcast. Using my three years experience of art class in high school, I knew that I wanted to combine history, mystery, and entertainment in the look. I needed to design a logo, make a slogan, then think about the tone. I scanned around the antiques in my house, and one caught my eye because it was looking at me. A 1940s German doll head with large old-fashioned googly eyes that move around when the head is tilted. I went to the drawing board and started drawing tiny thumbnail templates for the logo. I wanted to have the old of the objects and the new, the investigative methodology, in the logo. I love that type of dichotomy, the old and the new. The doll was the old and the background was the new. I knew that the thumbnail pictures on the podcast apps were small, like actually smaller than your thumbnail when it's in your device. So therefore the podcast name not only has to be legible, but makes sense with the imagery around it. This brings me back to my love of languages, or the words that comprise our lexicon. Something else you may not know about me, I'm a cruciverbalist, meaning that I love to construct crossword puzzles. Ever since I was five, I've loved language structure, scrambling letters around a word to make something else, like anagrams. That is essentially what crosswords are comprised of. When I say the words object obscura, what do you think of? That is what I ask myself repeatedly. Inherently, there is cleverness in the sounds of each word. They both start with OB, object obscura. Visually, those letters stacked on top of each other looked cool. 
the next idea came. Let's have the doll head come in from the left side, and its eyes would be the O's in Object and Obscura. And that was the first draft. I snapped a picture of the doll head on my phone with 4K resolution, pulled up Adobe Photoshop on my 2017 MacBook Pro laptop, and messed around with its placement. I got the white background from canva.com, which does have some free downloadable images, but the editing options are very limited. When I put that background behind the doll head in Photoshop, I knew that it was the one. Then came the font, the most important stylistic and tonal aspect of a logo. I actually got my inspiration from a book called Atlas Obscura. Though their font is a simpler Egyptian sans serif, I was inspired by the borders around each letter. It was a subtle, shiny gold. It invokes mystery, intrigue, and wonder. I found an extra bold Playfair display font, like a curvier Georgia serif. Then I put a white border around each letter, adjusted the kerning, the space in between the letters, to be as wide as possible, and voila! I adjusted the O slightly and made it look like the doll was mad or hiding something. A quick trick to do that is to actually cover the top of the pupil. Apparently through human evolution, seeing the full eye is recognizable, but obscuring the top part of the eye is deemed as a threat. It is lightly related to the Japanese phenomenon Sanpaku, a similar belief that your eyes affect your fate. Obviously, a logo isn't everything. You need a catchphrase or a jingle when starting out as a new podcast. Since the word object was already used in the title, I decided to use every item has a story in the actual logo. And as you know from the podcast itself, at the end of every episode I would say, every object has a story, but it still gets the message across. After I did the logo, I moved to the show's theme music. Let me start off by saying, I am no musician, but with my weak attempts at learning violin and having a great sense of rhythm, I wanted to take a stab at it. I used GarageBand. It's free, easy to use, and can get the job done. I looked through their looped track library. All types of instruments played in a loop that you can just drag over to your music track. Like my visual logo, I wanted the old and the new in the song. So the strings, piano, and bells were kind of the old part of it to me. The piano organ you hear in the beginning That is actually an antique jazz vox organ piano, so old objects are heard in every episode. When it came to the percussion and rhythm, I wanted that to be more modern. So when everything was aligned, together we get this. I really wanted the last horns to echo, to show an expansive breath of something to come, a mystery that reverberates. The original goal for this podcast was to make my first episode under $100. That wasn't very realistic. Just looking at the editing software alone from Adobe, that was 30 bucks a month for all the software. I will say that made it easy to make my music from GarageBand and just put it into Adobe Audition. Audition was my editing software for all five episodes of season one. I'd never used it before, but I was used to Adobe's interface in Photoshop and Premiere. Now the promotional slash advertising side of things. Some may say that you need an audience before you can sell to them, but I just wanted to spread my word around before my first launch on October 2nd. I made video, audio, and pictorial advertisements that Facebook would distribute as ads. So that means I had to make a new Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest account for Object Obscura. 
one example of a well-received ad. In late August, I put out a video audiogram advertisement, just a minute-long trailer with my voice, the logo, and an audio WAV file to the right. After promoting that video twice, paying like 22 bucks, it showed that over 16,000 people saw my ad, 1,100 of them played it all the way through, and less than 10 of those people clicked the link to my website. My website object-obscura.com was designed by GoDaddy. They had the domain object obscura with that dash in the middle, and I took it. But it is pretty expensive to have a domain and a customizable website for a whole year. So I knew the word was spreading. But what was my content? What and who was I going to include in each episode? When I look at an object, I ask the six questions. What, who, when, where, how, and why? In each episode, I wanted all of those questions to be answered. The most important to me were the what and who, in that order. What is this thing, and who did it belong to? So each episode would have someone telling me the what, and the person who owned it telling me the who. The what guest is the expert of the overall historical context, and the who guest is the personal expert, if you will, of what that object meant to them. How was I going to get two people featured in each episode? Well, with COVID-19 posing a challenge for television, cinema, and any impersonal event production, I thought it best to make my show COVID-friendly. So I decided on only doing a virtual investigative show. Instead of knocking door to door, I was clicking email to email. For each guest, there were 10 in total throughout season 1, I needed to do my own research to set up their interviews. This is where my love for history combined with linguistics. Both fields of study have a thesis, methodology, and in some way look at change over time. So when I research each object, I'm not only looking at the who and what of the item itself, but the familial histories attached to them after they were made. Thankfully, Ancestry.com was very helpful. I think it's only 20 bucks a month for the most basic subscription to see birth, death, marriage, and military records. But that only gets you the who. For the what, I just scoured the internet looking for specific sources. In historical analysis, especially for objects, it is important to find a plethora of primary sources backed up by secondary sources. Primary sources are documents written during the time in question, like the World War II Japanese phrase book in episode 1. And secondary sources are essays or books written about the time in question, like Yaroslav Blecha's essay of the Czech toy puppets in episode 4. Newspapers.com, Find a Grave, and Genealogy Bank were other helpful sources to find primary and some secondary sources. Though it isn't the same sifting through paper ephemera in a library for hours, I did scroll through over 500 digitally scanned primary source papers for season 1. When I got the bulk of the research down, now it was about delivery and recording. I was into production. Nowadays, anyone can buy a good condenser microphone under $100. Even ones under $50 bucks are just as good. I got myself a Pseudotac Professional USB condenser microphone with a stand, pop filter, and mount for just $45 bucks on Amazon. It's actually the one I'm using right now. However, in my first test run, I realized that sitting down when my mic was on a table restricted my voice. So I paid for a mic stand about six feet tall so that I stood when I recorded. Here is a snippet of episode one where I sat down for some takes. This message was essentially an invitation to investigate versus in episode five when I stood up. What is this light and who is Dietz? 
In the first episodes, I didn't really have a main script. I just wrote down what I thought would sound the best. But any paper script is just that. It can only be truly realized when it's applied. From my podcast, I learned that it is good to write down a script, record, edit the script, then re-record, and so on, until it is the best it can be. But that was not the case with the beginning of Object Obscura. I had an episode come out every two weeks on Friday, and sometimes I would write, record interviews, and research in only one week. It was tight. My dad, mom, and sister would help me with writing. My mom is a theater actress with almost 30 years of experience. My dad is a film director, producer, and writer, doing it for almost 20 years. So my mom has a good ear, and my dad has a good eye. After a script was done in Google Docs, I would edit it, thank my parents, and record within the next day. I got sharper with my writing as the show went on. Whether it was writing about myself in the show, using humor, puns, comparisons, I found a way to use my voice and also make the show universal. When I got to recording, I stood up and placed my mic in my closet. Closets are not only great for most podcasters because they're small, it's because there's clothing already in there. Fabric absorbs sound and can make any echo disappear in a small room where the acoustics generally would bounce around. So the script is just words, and the recording is the tone of those words. So I did many takes. Even the every object has a storyline, I think I did that over 50 times. I mean, which word would you put the stress on? Every object has a story, or every object has a story? I don't know. I could plug in my mic directly into my computer since it is a USB mic. Therefore, I can see my audio wave file in Adobe Audition as I was speaking, and I'm even doing that right now. Unfortunately, I forgot something early on. Each mic has an input setting, mono or stereo. Mono is essentially where both left and right channels are the same, and stereo is a balance of left and right and other background sounds. Sometimes in my recording, I didn't know which one to use based on the recording environment I was in, whether in a closet or outside. Here's the difference. The mono narration recording in episode one, I turned to Ancestry, versus the stereo recording of Bob and Margaret in episode five. My name is Margaret Smith and I am a native Tucson. <laughs> so I got the script, I found my voice, what do I do from here? My show operated from the idea that the script was written and recorded before the interviews. So that's what I did for episodes one and two. This made it easy to put in the recorded interviews in the what an expert slot in the beginning and the who and personal story slot at the end. This proved to be a challenge by episode three though. Next came the interviews. When I started this in July, I probably sent over 300 messages, letters, and emails to people. And only about a hundred of them replied back to me. I realized that time was a lot to take from people. But in each case, an expert would be talking about something they knew a lot about, or a person would be sharing their family story about an object. So my guests would get something from it too. For each call, I used Rev Call Recorder, a free app on your phone that records any phone call easily. But in all honesty, the quality of the recorded files were inconsistent. That is why it's actually best to do interviews in person first. And if you can't do that, then do Zoom or Skype second. And if those options don't work, the last resort is a phone call, but each way has a different recording setup. I only had two in-person interviews for the show, both in episode 5, and only one of them I recorded. I learned something about in-person interviews. You never know how your environs can ruin a great story. When I interviewed Bob and Margaret in Tucson for episode 5, I didn't know that an animal could make it unsafe. 
In southern Arizona, we have javelinas, which are collared peccaries, a hairy, fast-running warthog-looking animal. Though they can be territorial, on our property, they're pretty docile. During my interview, there were two of them sleeping 15 feet away from us, and they only moved once during the 50-minute interview. Are they moving? Yeah, they just move it over a little bit. See what? A little javelina. Kind of... right there. Oh, I see him. We get them off in our front yard. Oh, yeah. Also, in episode two, during a phone call interview with Rich Hopkins, a daddy longling spider trickled down on my nose during the call. So you never know how your environs can affect your interview and your overall story. When production was all done and everything was in my editing software, now came post-production. Whether an interview was in person or by phone, I always wanted a transcription of the interview. To see every word of our discussion would help the script. I did that process for episodes two through five. There are cheaper options to use, but no service is better for transcriptions than Trent. You can take your audio file of the interview, select what language it's in, there are even dialects of most languages, then in about 10 to 30 minutes, it gives you a rough transcription. I clean it up, export the words into Google Docs, and edit the transcribed interview for a second time. I usually number each section and put them in a specific order based on theme. In episode one, I talked to Donna on the phone. Hello. Hello, Donna. Our interview lasted 52 minutes. I whittled it down to the best stories related to her life, the object, and her father's life in the war, and I got it down to about 12 minutes. Condense, concise, conclude. That is what I learned about editing the interviews. Final stage of post-production is the most difficult. There's the editing, sound effects, music, sound mixing, leveling, and distribution. Editing has always been intuitive for me. Editing is not just cutting, moving, placing audio in different places. It's about the tools used to change the overall story. The pre-production logo design and brand are the specific ingredients. The production recording of my narration and interviews is the whole dish and the post-production editing are the kitchen appliances, utensils, and final garnish. And after the food is done, how do you distribute it? Similar to how food is given to you at a restaurant, showy and flashy like teppanyaki tricks, or simple and elegant like breakfast in bed delivery on a cart at a five-star hotel. People want to consume what they hope to expect. So I had my ingredients, my dish was taking shape, but many times, in post-production, I overcooked everything. It was an inconsistent mess. So I learned to continue to make mistakes and learn the following attempt. Listen to this part of episode one. And below that he wrote home and an address that is unfortunately too faded to read. I used the blade tool in audition to cut my narration up, but I overused this tool, not realizing that an audience member needs time to breathe with their ears, as in let information sink in. Compare that to episode five. But in person, she was just as excited about objects as I was. I asked her, so when did you get this light? As you can hear, there are a lot of pauses, some with music and some without. It's like a relationship. Make the other person miss you by doing you first. As a podcast host, I had to kind of embody that. Make the audience miss your voice or mystery, even if it was a split second moment of time. To save myself in post-production, I needed to make my narration stronger. They say the better managed your production and pre-production is, the easier your post will be. When I brought my recorded phone call interviews into audition, I would record my narration around what they said. I was tight on time, and I was doing everything. I had no team, so I used some shortcuts. 
There are templates in Audition called Podcast Voice, and that is what you hear now. It slightly compresses my voice and gets rid of the background noise behind me. In my editing timeline, my narration was done and my interviews were in, both heavily edited. In some of the interviews, there were over 200 cuts, some seamless and some overt. At the end, I put in sound effects and music, most of which are mentioned in the early scripts so that I would know what noise to get and where to put it. I get my noises from freesound.org, a free downloadable audio library. They have music and sounds, but look in the description to see if the sound or music is in public domain or not. Most artists want their name mentioned in the description or episode itself, and some sounds I made myself. I am no Foley artist, but I clearly disguised other sounds together. That sound was from episode 2, but I didn't have the Matrix box with me, so I used another antique box instead. I even did voiceover recording in episode 4. <laughs> Those people you hear are all me. I am speaking Czech in some of them. Dobriden means good evening and ahoy means hello. I wanted to think if a kid were making these puppets talk, what would they sound like? Finally came the music. I used YouTube Music Library, which has thousands of free songs. Some require accreditation in the description. In each episode, there is a themed song related to the object in that episode. Episode 1 score was Bat Snacks, related to the World War II Japanese phrase book. Episode 2 track by Track Tribe that reminded me of the Matrix box. Episode 3 music scored by a good friend of mine, Alec Leal, about the 19th century top hat. Episode 4 song scored again by Alec Leal, evoking the sound of Czechoslovakian marionettes. Finally, episode 5 song, Held By You, was written and sung by a great friend of mine, Zaskia Via, about the Tucson Highway Light. So for episodes 3 to 5, I felt honored to share skilled musicians' work in my episode. It was amazing how Alec and Zaskia made their music from knowing little information. All I would tell them was, I have this object, could you make a song about that? It actually helped them to let their own creativity run wild by not knowing much about what I found. But sometimes I sent other musical inspirations to help them out. I wanted to combine my sound effects and themed music together. I do that in episode 3, using the epic sweeping score of Alec Leal to evoke a Top Hats soundtrack. Then I would interject in this fantasy with my narration as sound effects pile up in the background. Let's break this down for a second. I knew that Noel, the hat maker in episode 3, was from a German family, and that his hat store was printed in a German-American newspaper in St. Louis. So I thought his hat shop would exist in a bustling German neighborhood. This crowd noise here is actually from a German market in Leipzig. The other two crowd noises are to add to the depth. One is of a street musician playing a barrel organ carousel on the street corner. And the other is a balanced outdoor street noise crowd. 
When the man enters the shop, I have the doorbell opening and two separate wood floor creaking sounds. Then, when he steps outside, the violin comes in. I would dip down the volume of the music and sound effects whenever I spoke, then raise it again when my narration finished. You can hear horse and carriages, which are two separate recordings. All of these sounds I've mentioned are from freesound.org, and they are all sounds you can get for free. Then I included a church bell in the distance. And you can also hear faint construction hammers and mallets. I included that because St. Louis actually gets its first streetcars in 1886, and this hat was from 1885. And as you learn in the episode, the streetcar plays an interesting role in Henry Knoll's life ten years later. Then I wanted the swell of Alex's score to crescendo as the background sounds dissipate. Here is that whole one-minute narration, sound effect, and score section from episode three. Imagine for a second. An upper-class businessman walks into Henry Knoll's hat shop. He puts on the top hat and walks outside on Franklin Avenue. A dusty street of central St. Louis in 1885. People, horses, and carriages darting past him. As he arrives to work, steam engines roar in the Missouri sky. When I was done with an episode, I would publish it in Anchor, a distributing service that sends your podcast to specific apps. It is free. The only tricky thing is waiting to see if your podcast platform officially accepts your show, Apple Podcasts being the most anticipated one. After sending it out into the world, there can be some inconsistent results. Sometimes it takes two days for an episode to appear in some apps. On my website, I publish the episodes manually in SoundCloud, since Anchor does not distribute to them. Then the very last step was to make episode art. I love paper collage, and so I made a unique episode thumbnail in Photoshop with a central image, background, and specific typography. If you look at each episode's art on the website, there is a unique font type related to the object in some way. And that was the show. All of the cogs in the machine came together to make a clock and it all moved along like clockwork. Thanks for listening to this behind-the-scenes episode. Just to let you all know, I was accepted into the Fulbright Scholarship ETA program to teach English in Brazil. 
It has been pushed back due to COVID, but I hope to continue this show and that scholarship in the fall of 2021. I turned to my dad once during the making of the show and I said, I love doing this. If I had to do this job for the rest of my life, I wouldn't complain. This was the behind the scenes episode of Object Obscura. This is the part where I usually plug everything about my podcast and that you should all listen to it. Then I would say it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. It's actually on eight different streaming platforms. You can see all those links on my website, object-obscura.com. Then I would ask my audience if they would like to send in a story about an object, but only one person has done that. If you want to send one, you can send it to my business email, thatcher at object-obscura.com. Oh, and I almost forgot, social media. I put all pictures of the object and my research on Instagram, at object.obscura and on Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast. You can also write me there if you want. Then this is the part where I say that this was an Anchor distributed podcast. You can also edit and record in Anchor, but it is very limited. Then I give thanks to all the people who helped me along the way, starting with the amazing musicians Alec Leal and Zaskia Villa, plus the others I found on YouTube Music Library. Then I would thank all the people that have helped me in the episode. Above all, I think my amazing parents and sister. Then I tease something that may happen in a future episode, like maybe I've already started season two. Then I try to sound cool and say something at the very end, like keep collecting, stay obscure, and have a great Christmas. Thanks guys. Thanks guys.